Now streaming, the Netflix and Swill podcast. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Netflix and Swill podcast, your source for Netflix news, reviews, and booze. I'm your host, Caleb. And I'm thinking of ending things. And I'm uh, ending it right now. Just ate all the sleeping pills. Yikes! Do you remember, that was, uh, I think I talked about that on uh, when me and Gerald did our top SNL skits episode. The fucking, uh, it's Adam Sandler and Chris Farley, and they're going through the fucking restaurant guide, and, uh, Adam Sandler's just over it, and he's like, sleeping pills, my only friend, and it shows him just, like, dump an entire bottle of pills in his mouth and then die. <laughs> that was a weird skit. That's the one where Chris Farley is his wife and is very annoying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, yep. I, yeah. And then uh, David Duchovny shows up and is uh, her sister. Weird. What a weird sketch. And then uh, then Adam Sandler dies and the two of them just continue prattling on like maniacs. Uh, How are you? I'm fine. Uh, I made some fermented hot sauce this week. Uh, It's a little little too watery, but uh, that can obviously be fixed by not adding so much fucking liquid the next time. Uh, but otherwise, it's very delicious. Uh, I'm very happy with uh, how it came out. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, it's working through my Labor Day weekend, because I celebrate Labor Day by performing labor. There you go. For a company that doesn't give me the day off. Wait, really? Yep. I, you're going to have, like, no customers, too. That's going to be amazing. Uh, judging by the amount of phone calls that I got today asking if we would be open Labor Day, uh, we determined that was a lie. <laughs> uh, I had to be reminded multiple times that tomorrow, uh, as of recording date, is Labor Day. Uh, because uh, my boss comes in on, like, Thursday, and she's like, All right, see you guys Tuesday. I'm like, Why? You know, uh, have a good, have a good holiday. I'm like, oh, that's right. It is Labor Day. She's like, don't, whatever you do, don't log in Monday. Don't do it. I know you don't log in. <laughs> Cause that's just the way I am. I, 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 I work way too much, uh, and have to be told to stop working so goddamn much. Uh, watch, you'll end up doing it anyway. Oh, no, I actually have it all packed up in my backpack, so that way I can't possibly log in. Like, I'll, I'll look at my backpack and be like, why is everything in my backpack? Oh, because I don't work today. That said, my alarm is still going to go off for 8 o'clock because I'm not changing it for one holiday. All right. Uh, that's banter. Uh, So, uh, in, in a Charlie Kaufman-esque way, we, we kind of did uh, What's Your Swill, or at least Caleb did What's Your Swill, uh, much later in the episode, uh, but I'll do What's Your Swill now for me. Can we please get some alcohol into my mouth? He hates these cans! 
I have Bud Light Orange. Thank you for attending What's Your Swill? Let's move on to news. Oh, shit, it's mail time. But it doesn't taste like apples. Apple Jacks? Does it taste like oranges? Oh, yeah, it predominantly tastes like orange. Okay. Like, it doesn't even taste like Bud Light at all, which is which is fine. I'm fine with it not tasting like Bud Light, but... Uh, you, you know, like, it's like they threw, like, a bunch of, like, orange candy into a, a batch. And, like, accidentally some jackass had, like, all this unwrapped orange candy and just went, whoops! And, like, market this shit. Someone will drink this. Huh. Okay. Okay, so our first story is that Netflix has canceled two more family sitcoms. The first being Alex Gar... Or, no, not Alex Garcia. Ashley Garcia. Uh, Genius... What the fuck is it actually called? Genius in Love? Genius in Love. And then the other one is the, the most important one. Uh, the Big Show Show was also canceled. Which, uh, now let me proceed to... Uh, you Googleize it for 15 minutes. This is the biggest tragedy in the history of mankind. Uh, we're gonna need... The Undertaker to lay this show to rest. Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Look, we we watched the show. We reviewed the show. Uh, Caleb wanted to fucking gouge his eyes out. I don't even think you finished the show. <laughs> I don't remember. It's it's not good. It's it's just not. It's not a good show. It's a it's a family sitcom show, so, and it has a very specific audience. And I don't think that audience is on Netflix. Uh, this is yet another family. Like these are two more family sitcom shows that have been canceled. I wouldn't be shocked to see more get canceled. Uh, and, and I think this is like their weekly content where they don't know how to or who to uh, market this to. So they're, they're going to struggle to find an audience because they always look like garbage. So I don't know. Uh, I, I I don't. I wonder how many more shots they're going to give the family sitcom. Probably a lot more, because it doesn't cost them much. Yeah, I, don't, I couldn't imagine anyone's price ticket was that big. Which, like, considering that, like, why wouldn't you just keep it going forever? Uh, like, no one's going... Like, unless it's, like, no one's watching it. Like, if it has some sort of audience, like, somebody's watch, Like, it's so cheap. Just keep it going. It's like one day at a time. Like, why didn't you just keep one day at a time going? Your Your highest profile actress on there was, like, Rita Moreno. And she couldn't be asking for that much, could she? Yeah. Okay, that'll take us to our next news story, which is that uh, Prince Henry and Meghan Markle have signed a production deal with Netflix. Uh, I think they were doing the Paralympics. Like, they they were in charge of production for the Paralympics documentary that uh, has already come out. But uh, this makes their their partnership with Netflix a, a bit more official. All right. Uh, I've I've no real thoughts on this. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. You're allowed to have no thoughts. I don't have any thoughts on it either. It's just like a thing. Like, like it's like with the Obamas. I I think it was just like a, a kind of name recognition thing. Like, oh, Prince Henry and Meghan Markle are doing things for Netflix. Interesting. This is like the Obamas. Oh, cool. The Obamas are doing things for Netflix. We'll see what happens when these things actually come out. Uh, and finally, uh, so Zack Snyder has a movie coming out later this year in theory, on Netflix called Army of the Dead. Well, uh, it it hasn't released yet, but we're already getting a prequel animated series for it, because f- who cares? Yeah, um, Zack Snyder is d- very great. Everybody should care a lot about his cut, 
and the releasing of it. Look, I'm very excited I for guess. that cut. I need four hours of Justice Get League. Get the cut. Look, I'm the only person that fucking liked Justice League in the first place, so I I, I need more. It was like everything else, DC. It was it was fine. Fine, just fine. I don't know. They can't all be Aquaman and Shazam and I guess Wonder Woman. Yeah. But I don't I look, the so we talked about like um the animated series the the animated prequel series for The Witcher uh coming out during the run of The Witcher. Uh Altered Carbon had an animated movie that came out during its run and then uh that show was canceled. So uh animated shows seem to based off of live action series seem to be very niche and we don't even know what customer response is going to be to army of the dead in the first place so the fact that they're already making something either says that they believe in it or they're just guessing people will watch it yeah i don't know i don't really know anything about it that's fair so i'm around and with that that'll move us over into downstream where we can talk about some trailers that happened this week baby i can't control the internet Alright, the first trailer is for The Haunting of Bly Manor, which is a follow-up to The Haunting of Hill House. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dan, what did you think? Uh, It looks creepy. It looks more overtly creepy than Haunting of Hill House. Like, Haunting of Hill House had its creepy moments, but ultimately it was a family drama with horror elements attached to it. This looks like Mm -hmm. more of a straight-up horror. More of a traditional haunted house, yeah. Right. Yeah, this is probably going to be good. Uh, Speaking of probably going to be good, uh, here's something that isn't that. (laughs) From the franchise that refuses to die for some reason. uh, Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous uh, and CG animated show for kids. A bunch of kids do a summer camp at the Jurassic Park Island. And... Something tells me that at some point dinosaurs are probably going to escape. You're going to call me a dumb person. This doesn't look terrible. It's, it, it looks like it could be watchable. Uh, it, it basically is like, you know, the first Jurassic Park, but with just a bunch of kids. Uh, will it actually yeah. be good? And will there be stakes? Because stakes actually need to happen to me. Uh, yeah. for this, I know it's a kid's show, so doubtful. Yeah, uh, I think it's hilarious. That literally the plot of Jurassic World was that uh, they had to up the ante because the park had diminishing returns because people just didn't give a shit about the dinosaurs anymore. Mm -hmm. And like, (laughs) since the first one, the movies have diminishing returns because just no one gives a shit. That is actually Corey's favorite part about it is that it's a very meta commentary on franchises (laughs) themselves. Yeah. I still haven't watched uh, Jurassic World, and I don't think I want to. Especially how, considering how uh, Jurassic World Lost Kingdom uh, murdered my boy, Justice Smith. Yeah, look what they did to my boy. <laughs> Everyone hates Justice Smith, and we're and there's just you and me sitting back being like, but the get down, though. But Detective Pikachu, he was actually great in that. Yeah, he was pretty good in Detective Pikachu. I gotta watch Detective Pikachu again. I gotta, I gotta give it another chance. I gotta be open, more open-minded with that. I fucking love that movie. 
All right. Uh, our next trailer is for uh, a, a love song for Latasha. It's a documentary about a, a girl who, a 15-year-old black girl who was killed in 1992 that really triggered the L.A. race riots. Or just riots? Yeah, riots? she was murdered by the police. So, uh, Very, very uh, prominent even still today. I guess she wasn't shot by police. She was shot by a uh, a store owner. Oh, was it a Korean store owner? Yeah, for trying to steal like a thing of juice or whatever. But this happened. It happened at the during the same month as uh, when the LAPD beat Rodney King. So that makes sense. Uh, I didn't. I never knew that part about it. Like I always assumed that Rodney King was the the big thing behind the riots. And I was always confused as to why you you could see like Koreans, like Korean American store owners, like standing on the roofs of their store with guns. Like I was always confused by that. So I guess that makes sense as to why like looting Korean owned stores is a big thing. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, and then fucking Sublime wrote a song about it for some fucking reason. Because people think they're more important than they are. <laughs> uh, as soon as I say this next sentence, a million hippies are going to cry out in despair, but uh, I fucking don't like Sublime. And I never really did. They're, they're fine. All right, uh, that'll move us on to our next trailer for Sing On, a reality composition show hosted by Titus Burgess. Uh, he's thin and he has hair. Uh, he looks really good. I, I haven't seen Titus Burgess like this ever, so this this was kind of shocking to see him. I think this is a really good competition for a reality uh, singing show because uh, rather than a panel of judges, they have, like, it's basically like the rock band microphone where it, like, tracks your voice and shows you how in on pitch you are mm -hmm. and kind of judges you that way. So whoever's the most technically accurate singer is the one that advances. Uh, I like that idea. It's basically a karaoke contest. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. Uh, I'm excited to watch the first couple episodes when all the people are real bad and before they get eliminated. I don't know if it carries over. I, I'm wondering if these people sing and then, or they're if it's eliminated. more like Jeopardy. Yeah, if it's like a one episode kind of yeah. thing, like where six people compete for one episode's prizes or whatever. Yeah, uh, looks fine. I don't know. It's a game show. You mentioned it before we were recording, but uh, it's probably the most interesting way to do a game show because, like, we we haven't seen this before. Like, we've never seen someone take you know the rock band style approach to vocals with karaoke competitions. M mainly it's like killer karaoke where it's like, here, let's throw fucking alligators at this human being. <laughs> what? Is this a real show? Oh yeah. Killer karaoke ho hosted by Steve-O. Oh my God. They don't actually throw alligators at people. They, they, they do some weird fucking shit with killer karaoke. It's fucking wild. All right, our next trailer is for the movie The Boys in the Band, starring Jim Parsons, uh, Matthew Bomer, and Zachary Quinto. This movie looks pretty good. I uh, 
I thought that it was nice that they hired gay actors to portray gay men. Yeah. I always I always forget that Matthew Bomer and and Zachary Quinto are gay. All uh, and like I th- I think that's what they're going for is like it doesn't matter for them. Like it's part of their identity but it's yeah. not like their identity. Right. Right. Like I hate like I just think it's obnoxious in movies and stuff where like they have a gay character just to have a gay character and their personality is that they're gay. Right. But uh like I don't know, like this is about a, a group of gay men, so it's more I guess like uh just a story about their lives and shit. But mm-hmm. uh concept seems interesting, so they like uh Jim Parsons makes them Sheldon, Bazinga, uh he makes all of them like play a game where you have to uh try to call the one person that you thought that you really loved. Yep. And if you do that, you get a point. If they pick up and you talk to them, you get two points. And then you get uh the bonus lightning round if you tell them that you love them. And it's yeah. I guess about a bunch of people facing their past mistakes and shit. It's really interesting to see what Jim Parsons does outside of Big Bang, because obviously, you know, Sheldon and all, and Penny, knock, Bing knock, bong. knock. Uh, it's, it's Sheldon. Sheldon. <laughs> uh, it's interesting to see him go for things that are way <laughs> off that path. Like, uh, he was in uh, yeah. Extremely Wicked last year as, an, as a prosecution attorney. And that's not a role you would consider him in, but... He was in uh, the Muppets movie for, like, uh, two minutes for, like, a single musical number. But it was, like, a really hilarious, like, one-off punchline mm-hmm. that he was just in the movie. So, yeah. I- I- I'm glad he's shifting his career into doing, I don't want to say more Eric's experimental stuff, but uh, showing a wider range of what he's capable of. Yeah. After being yeah nerd. And uh, I'm happy for him, because I think that he was probably going to kill himself if he had to keep playing Sheldon. I mean, that makes sense. Because I, I, I don't think that he genuinely enjoyed being that character. That makes sense. I mean, they, eventually, towards the end, I think they were all trying to make friends money. Like, they, they were all making friends money per episode, which is like a million, a million per episode. So these people are yeah. set. Like every single one of them is set. Like they don't have to find any new roles. Although, um, we I don't I didn't put the trailer in here for it, but in Criminal Season Two, the the guy who plays Raj is going to be uh somebody at the uh at the table who who's getting interviewed. So that'll be interesting as well. So it's cool to see them do their own thing. I mean, Kaylee Cuoco is also on uh that uh, Harley Quinn animated show that people seem to love. Oh yeah, the one that's on uh. DC Universe, and I'll never get to see it. Well, it's on HBO Max, so they, they, they're they consolidating everything oh. into HBO Max. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, so. I remember that, because I was excited, because I'll finally get to see Doom Patrol. Yeah. So, uh, all that to say, uh, it's produced by Ryan Murphy. Uh, that doesn't scare me from this. Uh, it, it looks like all he did was, you know, fork over some money. Uh, to help get this produced in the first place, and looks like he's relatively hands off otherwise. So, uh, I will probably watch this. All right. 
Uh, and last but not least is the trailer for Challenger, The Final Flight, uh, which is a docu-series. Uh, so this is about the space shuttle missions and the Challenger explosion. Yeah, um, I'm too young to remember this, because I think this happened before I was even born. Uh, it happened, like, nine months before I was born. So, like, I think, to, for me, this is, like, the event before 9-11. Like, this was the measuring stick. Like, where were you when the Challenger blew up? Like, because it was nationally broadcast. Everyone was aware of the Challenger and, like, kind of what it meant, like... The big thing everyone knows is that a teacher was aboard. Uh, and, yeah. and this kind of goes into everyone's, every one of the crew's stories. Like, I didn't know uh, we had the first uh, African-American to go to space, the first Asian-American to go to space. Like, I didn't I didn't know that. I just knew about the teacher and that the, the Challenger blew up. So this is going to be interesting to watch because uh, I think this is one of the few docuseries I will want to watch. Yeah, looks good. Okay, and then move us over to Quick Hits, where we talk about some other stuff that we watched this week. So, Caitlin, uh, tell me what you uh, did some Scream Death Metal to. Uh, yes, I watched Agretzko Season 3. So in the second season, she, like, didn't scream metal at all. So, like, I don't know, sometimes the show just, like, completely changes what it is for no reason. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, the second season, it was all about, like, uh, she had a new relationship, and that was very exciting, and kind of became what her life was all about. And then it didn't work out. Uh, so that kind of was where she was left at the end of that, uh, and where it picks up with the third season. So, kind of, to get away from that, she gets, like, a PlayStation VR and has, like, this VR boyfriend game mm -hmm. that she's just spending way too much fucking money on buying, like, fake clothes for a VR boyfriend, um, which is kind of a, a funny joke, I guess. And then, so, she has money problems, um, and then she, like, backs into a dude's car. Uh, who, like, she has to pay for damages to that. Mm -hmm. So instead of, like, taking her to court or whatever over it, the guy's like, all right, you're gonna work for me so that you can pay off your debt. Uh, so she's doing her regular job, and then she's moonlighting as uh, an accountant for this guy, which it turns out that the business he runs is a... Uh, he is like a manager slash promoter for a uh, an idol group. It's Ooh. like uh, a popular thing, like the the pop idols in Japan. It's like these three cute characters that sing and dance and do all this stuff. And um, so she becomes their accountant uh, because they're just like hemorrhaging money because this guy has no idea what the fuck he's doing. Mm -hmm. So she like basically seizes control and I'm kind of explaining the whole season here, but <laughs> that's kind of just the, the general arc of it. Um, but then like he finds out that, uh, like she's venting, like doing the, the karaoke booth screaming death metal. 
Uh, she's also trying to make money from like YouTube ad revenue by like uh, she becomes like a YouTube vocal coach to like teach people how to do the death scream. Mm. Uh, so yeah, the guy like sees her doing that and like makes her become part of the idol group. So they're doing like these Japanese bubblegum pop songs uh, with somebody just like screaming death metal shit over top of it. Huh. Uh, and then she gets a stalker. Oh, good. Um, and that's kind of the general arc. There's like a lot of other like little drama and stuff. Cause I don't know. There's the show's kind of all over the place, but it's just, I don't know. It's, it's short episodes. It's little and little and it fits right in and it's little and it's fine. It fits right in. Um, so I'll just, I'll keep writing out this show until it reaches its conclusion i suppose and that's i mean that's kind of where it leaves it for this season it's like there's a guy stalking her and like follows her back to her house and like takes pictures of her apartment and shit from the outside as she's walking into it and right it's, it's just really weird and then and then the season ends okay well, uh, that brings me to what I watched uh, and finally got through. It's Avatar Season 3. It's it's finally over, everybody. I'm finally going to stop talking about this. Uh, we left off with the Ember Island Players episode, which is uh, a lot of meta jokes and kind of the writers taking a look at the their past and being like, oh, this is a, this is a mistake. This is a thing we shouldn't have done, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then we get to yeah. Sosan's comment, which taking is... Taking the piss. Yes, uh, like um, there was that episode where they have the two uh, feuding clans from the Earth Kingdom, and it's like, well, this episode sucks. Let's move on. Hmm. Uh, so then we get to Sozan's comment, which is the end. Uh, and you you know, they introduce a storyline relatively late to the series, which is that Ang wants to handle the Fire Lord nonviolently and doesn't want to kill him. But then he's like, well, how are you going to, de- to like defeat him? Because like, he's always going to have firebending uh, because, you know, that's just the way it is. Like, So you got to kill him. And as all his past lives are telling him, no, you got to kill him. Uh, until we get to uh, Deus Ex Lion Turtle thing, where uh, this, this giant turtle that's the size of an island uh, gives him the ability or shows him how to energy bend in order to uh, take away someone's bending. And that's how he defeats the Fire Lord after uh, going into the Avatar state and just put fucking destroying him. Uh, Turns for like him into half an a non-bender, yeah. Yeah. So the Lion Turtles are, like, it explains more about them in Legend of Korra. Because that's where humans originally learned bending from. Mm-hmm. They bring up, like, how they were, like, the first energy benders. and Like, the energy bending scene is cool, and it's 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 interesting because, like, you don't... Like we 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 hadn't gotten it before, and but it's also like really can it's it's not something they were really talking about. It, it was just like a a thing that like oh you're gonna kill the Fire Lord, and it's like okay uh, oh here's and at the last second here's this way that you're not gonna have to be able to kill the Fire Lord. <laughs> so uh, would uh would they fix that with the the show uh, the animated show or the uh, live action show possibly. But uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. 
Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's still a good show. Like the the animation, especially picks up like for that Ozai fight. That Ozai fight. I, they were they were going relatively low key with with the third season uh, in order to beef up their animation budget for all the stuff that Ozai and Ang do in in that final fight. It's it's kind of insane. So. Uh, yeah, Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, if you needed me to tell you to watch it, you're uh, doing it wrong. All right. I'm uh, I'm happy for you. I'm glad you're done. Thanks. Uh, so we'll eventually move on to Legend of Korra. Well, why don't we take a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk about our main review topic. Uh, I'm thinking of ending, ending things, uh, and we will be joined by JD of In Session Film. The Netflix and Swole podcast is brought to you by our patrons. Gerald from Two Peas on the podcast, Nick and Justin from the Epic Film Guys podcast, Paul from the Countdown Movie and TV Reviews podcast, the IMDb Journey podcast, Julio from the Contrarians podcast, Ashley Gorski from the Rabbit Ears TV podcast, Nate Wade from the Everyone Has a Story podcast, Bill Sutton, James Delarosa, Ben Kiefer, Chris Yaney, Brianna Petty, and Dan's mom. If you would like to become a patron of the show, find us at patreon.com slash Netflix and Swill. In order to reach a wider audience, the show needs Apple Podcast reviews. To leave us a review, follow the link in the show notes or search for the show on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and helping us grow. Our audience is at the heart of everything we do. You make the one-star movies worth it. Welcome back, everybody. Caleb, we are joined by JD of the In Session Film Podcast, a podcast that is uh, reputable and uh, has actual critics as opposed to us jokers. So, JD, thank you for bringing legitimacy to this show. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be back, especially talking about the film we're going to. So, yeah, really appreciate the kind words. Glad to be here. Great. Uh, And, of course, we are talking about I'm Thinking of Ending Things from Charlie Kaufman. I'm thinking of ending things as a brand new drama thriller film from Netflix. It's rated R, 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb. Uh, Full of misgivings, a young woman travels with her new boyfriend to his parents' secluded farm. Upon arriving, she comes to question everything she thought she knew about him and herself, and the fixed moment in time that she inhabits, and the way that like continuity works and film structure and... Uh, it's very interesting. Okay, so uh, as per usual, JD, you are the guest on the show. So let's hear what did you think of "I'm Thinking of Ending Things." <laughs> well, it is Charlie Kaufman, and if you've if you've seen Charlie Kaufman films, you probably know what you're walking into. At least I would think that is the case. And and like a lot of Kaufman films, this one is certainly baffling. It is confounding, it's challenging, it's provoking. But like most of Kaufman films, at least for me, I found all of that to be wondrous. I, I love what he did with this film. It's first half in particular is really funny. I think this is arguably Kaufman's most biting film comedically. The way he uses irony is just wonderful. For example, there's an extended sequence early on in the film 
when Buckley's character and Jake, I'm not even sure what Buckley's character's She's name is on IMDb. She's just young yeah. Woman. So for the sake of this conversation, I'm just going to call her Buckley, I guess. (laughs) But in this sequence, she and Jake are driving to Jake's parents' house. And in their conversation, Jake starts talking about art and poetry, to which Buckley explains that she's, quote unquote, not a metaphorical gal. But then just a minute later, she goes off on this five-minute poem that is full of all kinds of symbolism and metaphor. And it is really funny. The dialogue that Kaufman writes there is great, but Buckley's performance, her dry and cynical delivery is so hysterical. And that's pretty constant throughout the film, not just with Buckley, but with all of these characters. There's several gags throughout the film that I found really funny, but maybe the one that stands out to me the most, I'll be vague here. Obviously I don't want to give spoilers away just yet, but there is a fake movie involved with this one. And there's a a credit card at the end that directed (laughs) by Jerry Bruckheimer. (laughs) It's so good. I love that the way he toys speaking of Kaufman, the way he toys with expectations and awkwardness to amplify the comedy is brilliant. And and when you get to the back half of this film, it becomes Charlie Kaufman being Charlie Kaufman, uh, which means that it gets tragic. It gets dark in the back half of this film. And I think that's what I love about the comedy here as a cinematic tool. The humor itself is great, but Kaufman uses it to balance out the tragedy we see at the end. The first half isn't without its cynicism, but it's balanced with that great humor that sets up everything so wonderfully. This is a masterclass in tone management as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Just a breathtaking film in terms of Kaufman's writing, direction, and, and the way he treats tone in this film uh the performances are great we'll certainly get more into that and and what all of this means uh but you know simply yeah it's a confounding film there's a lot to examine and explore here and i'm i can't wait to hear what you guys think about it okay uh caleb i believe this is your first charlie kaufman movie unless somehow you snuck in eternal sunshine of the spotless mind on me this week so uh what did you think of i'm thinking of ending things well, before I answer that question, Dan, I have to uh, do an impromptu bit of uh, what's your swill, because I stopped over at Tulsi Town and I got a <laughs> pint of Ben and Jerry's Netflix and chilled ice cream okay. and I put it in the blender and dumped some bourbon in it and made myself a Netflix and chilled uh, milkshake. Cool. <laughs> a Netflix and chilled burr. Yeah. <laughs> that you're going to leave in in your cup holders. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's starting to melt and it's going to make everything sticky. I just need to find some place to to throw this out. Can we can we take 20 minutes away from doing the show and what the show is about so I can find a place to throw out my ice cream, please? It's about to get weird. Oh, okay. I can't wait. <laughs> sure, do you want to do a dance number two? So, man, after after everything JD said, I don't really want to shit on this, but um, this is kind it's of like not going to be for I, everybody. So it's well, this is kind of uh, like I am very smart. The movie, but like I kind of knew what was going on fairly quick into it. Like it's deliberately inconsistent, and like even what they call the main character is inconsistent because 
uh, as it turns out, you know, the, the people like he didn't know her name in the first place. So, uh, anyway, I, hmm, <laughs> it's very well acted. It's, it is like, this is, this is like a film critics film. Like there's a lot of little, little moving parts that you can pick apart and everything kind of interlocks and, uh, meshes all perfectly with itself. Uh, but it's also just kind of uh, erratic. Like it, I don't want to say it wastes your time, but like it's it's deliberately um, just kind of like misleading the the viewer, uh, which is fine. Like some films are just like that. Like I, I'm probably coming off like I hate it. I I don't hate it. Okay. Like this is a fine. This is a fine movie, but it's this movie had. I think something very profound that it wanted to teach me or like something I was supposed to derive from it. And I can't for the life of me tell you what that was meant to be. That's, that's fair. Uh, as for my thoughts on it, I said it on Twitter. This is arguably the most dense film I've ever watched, uh, to which Gerald asked, uh, here's, here's three definitions of dense. What do you mean? I mean, (laughs) well, not the one that means it's stupid. The the dictionary (laughs) defines dense as, uh, Small divots in a piece of metal. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a like you said. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of literary, musical, film references that this mm-hmm. movie is is deriving from, uh, and, and I think it's especially poignant very early in the movie when uh, Jesse Buckley's character says, uh, "Is there such a thing as an original thought?" And it's kind of mirrored all the way throughout the movie in that, like, they're they're constantly quoting somebody else's work. Like, their thoughts are always, mm-hmm. like, you know, Freudian, uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, Wordsworth. Like, they're, they're always mentioning these people. Uh, and, I, and I think that that kind of leads to the irony that J.D. was talking about. Now, I don't find there to be as much comedy as J.D., uh, maybe because I don't find irony as comedic. Uh, that said... There is a deeper meaning, and I think the deeper meaning can only be derived from what you interpret it. I think this is a very interpretational movie, uh, and I said it to JD in the pre-roll. You talk to a hundred different people, they're going to have a hundred different responses on how they feel about this movie and what they think this movie's about. Absolutely. And, And on the surface, when it comes to the humor of the film... It's it's Charlie Kaufman. I feel like you're either on his wavelength or you're not. Mm-hmm. A lot of what you guys are saying is absolutely true. It is interpretive. It, it is confounding. As I mentioned in my opening thoughts, it's challenging. It's yeah. provoking. But what I love about Kaufman, there's something about his cynicism and the dry humor that he brings to his films. And a lot of it is also the performers that he gets to, to play these roles uh, because I feel the same about really all of his other films. I mean, you watch something like Synecdoche, New York, and that is one of the bleakest films I've ever seen. And yet I still think there's a lot of humor to that film because of Philip Seymour Hoffman and the actors that he gets in into the roles here. And, and, and I feel the same way about this film, Jesse Buckley on its face. A lot of what she's saying isn't going to make you laugh. I think it's, it's the irony, it's the expectations, it's the editing and the rhythm of Kaufman's filmmaking here. And, and just the way Buckley delivers a lot of these lines. I, I was laughing so hard in the first half of this film that I had to text 
one of my um, one of my co host on on in session film who had already seen the film and i asked him am i is this supposed to be this funny because i'm laughing so hard and i don't know if it's just me or what it is and he's and he felt the same way he's like no it's it's really really funny Uh um so i know i'm not alone in that but at the same time i i can i sympathize with why others might find this to be more of a slog or to be too confounding or you know too all over the place but there's something to the messiness of the film and the and the purposefulness and all of it that I really loved especially when you dig into the nuances of what Kaufman is doing and you know I I I hate the p word a lot of people throw it around and you know when they can't the P yeah, word think, for everybody is pretentious, in, in yes. case you're wondering. Oh. Yeah, people throw that around, and I think they throw that around when when they simply don't understand something. Yes, and and so I, I hate it. I I don't I don't use it at all. You know, there 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 are ways to articulate maybe why you don't like a thing, um, and I I I say that here to say, I I think some people will think that way. There is a lot of thematic heft to what Kaufman is exploring. And if you've seen his other films, sure. and it does help if you've seen his other films, that a lot of what he's examining here is something very close to his heart. And and in the end, for me, I find it all very poignant. I, I didn't really find the film pretentious or think that it was ineffective or a slog mm-hmm. or anything. It's just, I kind of, uh, like, I kind of realized what was going on before the third act shift where it starts explaining Mm -hmm. kind of what's going on. And uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know, whenever I can kind of figure out where a film's going ahead of time, like it kind of, uh, it kind of loses some of its magic for me. But I think that the funniest moment, I think the funniest moment in the film was uh, when they were at the farmhouse and they were saying about how she paints and stuff. And the dad was like, well, none of that abstract art shit. I don't like when you can't, see what's going on but like the the film itself is like well like the film itself is like an abstract film like this is as close Mm -hmm. oh yeah kind of as you can get to like a jackson pollock in the form of a film sure in terms of pretentiousness i i I also don't agree uh I, i i don't think this movie is pretentious in any way shape or form is it possibly a little too smart for its own good yes i i, yeah, I think it, it, i think it's trying very hard i think there are certain st- scenes uh, especially the car rides where the characters seem like they're trying really hard to sound smart uh and that's fine but it also goes with what buckley's character said at the beginning like i said they're referencing things that in reality they don't understand they just heard a what they consider to be a meaningful quote and just go oh this is a, a life philosophy and they talk about it yeah. with you know quotes musicals movies like the people they they even reference movies and how people look at movies and go oh this taught me something therefore this is a life lesson that that yes, i can follow yes shallow and yeah. pedantic <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean anybody can read the spark notes to plato <laughs> i will say this about the film and how confounding it can be. Maybe you guys feel differently, but this goes back to what Dan was saying in that, you know, all three of us are going to have very different opinions on this. Mm -hmm. And that's for sure. And that's fine. I I think what's interesting for me though, is that from moment to moment, I do actually think there is clarity as to what's happening to these characters on a deeper level. 
what it all means, broadly speaking, especially when you, especially when you take a, 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 you know, take a look back at everything in it on, on its whole, th- there is a fogginess to it for sure. And I admire that, uh, especially once we get to the farmhouse, Kaufman switches an entirely different gear and is very much toying with the idea of what's real and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. we get to the school at the end, arguably none of that was real. And I loved all of that. I love the mystery and what Kaufman seems to be tapping into when it comes to humanity's faux realities and how that impacts our lives. And I think what makes that work is not only, you know, what we get in the dialogue and in the performances, uh, but the way Kaufman uses the camera, the use of space, uh, the confined space we get in this film. I mean, this this whole film takes place in, what, three different sets, right? You have yeah. the car at the beginning that's brought back later on, but that's a pretty confined space. The house, the farmhouse itself is pretty tiny and claustrophobic for the most part. The most open we get is with the school at the end. And even that, though, you're still contained because of the snowstorm. So these characters aren't really getting that far outside of, you know, just their physical surroundings, which is of course symbolic of them not being able to get out of their own heads, uh, which is a line that is uttered early on in the film as well. Um, And so there's something about Kaufman's direction, broadly speaking. Yeah. It's a puzzle and putting it together takes time for sure. But I do think from scene to scene, individual moment to individual moment, I do think you can keep pace with what's happening. Um, and, and that, and Kaufman, I, I would say the same thing about Kaufman, all of Kaufman's films. And, and that to me, I think is what bridges or it, it provides a, a bridge from, from one set piece to the another. And, and that goes a long way for me personally. So I think to really dive into this movie, we really need to get into quote unquote spoilers because I don't, I don't feel like you can spoil this movie because it is just a lot of word soup at times. Uh, and like you said, there's not a lot of actual, I don't, at least in my opinion, there's not a lot of actual plot. There's just a lot of occurrences that happen. So uh, let's get to some closing non-spoiler thoughts and then move on to a wide discussion on uh, what we think this movie is. So uh, Caleb, any final thoughts? Just like I kind of was saying earlier, like this is a this is like a film critics movie. Like if if you're interested to this and like I am going to recommend this, but it's mm-hmm. like only if you're really if you want to watch some acting showpiece performances. Because like you said, there's not really like a plot to speak of. Like it's just kind of a, a series of unconnected scenes for a decent part of it. So. Uh, but if you want to see some good acting, check it out. Okay. JD? Yeah, I mean, I guess as as far as some final thoughts before we get to spoilers, I, I do want to quickly talk a little bit further about the Buckley character um, and, and how Kaufman plays with her. Because there's this interesting dichotomy in the sense that she's both an active and a passive participant um there she's doing a lot of voiceover narration in this film a lot of it is from the perspective of her own headspace early on she even says that she's someone or at least it's implied that she's someone that would rather be in her own head than be in actual conversation um you know she embodies the idea that the world 
being, you know, the world is larger than our own heads mm-hmm. and, and it probably should be, but in a lot of ways it never really is. We can't escape our own doubts, our own thinking, especially as artists. And that's a whole big element to this film as well. Um, especially with Jake and the Buckley character. And I love what Kaufman does in terms of somewhat, uh, uh, tapping into that idea early on in that sequence I mentioned earlier between Buckley and Jake when they're in the car, she says something to the effect that humans are the only animals who understand the inevitability of their own death. Other animals live in the present, humans cannot, so they invented hope. Mm-hmm. And again, maybe this speaks to what you guys were saying earlier as far as the quote-unquote smartiness of the film. But there's something about that idea and how it's presented in this film that I I never really heard or seen before as it relates to the human condition. Um, I, I found that actually quite profound. It ties into the back half of the film in some pretty large ways that we'll get into when we get to spoilers. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do love that regarding Buckley as an active participant. Then in the the latter half of the film, she's more of an observer. She's much more sharp and and astute in the first half of the film. Um, Although it does come back in the car ride on the way home when they're talking about Cassavetes and a woman under the influence. That whole discussion was also hilarious. Uh, and Buckley's performance also switches gears. I don't know if you guys noted, noticed that at all. She kind of channels Pauline Kale in that sequence, which I, I thought was pretty yeah, incredible. I, I, I heard her switch accents, which was yeah. very interesting. It it was very interesting. And of course, Kaufman, in terms of his visual imagery, alluded, alludes to this in the farmhouse sequence. So it was set up, but then Buckley kind of takes it to a whole level there. I love that. But aside from that uh, sequence on the way to the ice cream shop, in the back half, Buckley is mostly an observer. She gets lost in the evolving transformations of the farmhouse, becomes entangled in this web of varying realities. And she doesn't really say much. She just walks around bewildered and disoriented. And as things happen in front of her, all we see is her reacting to the uncertainty. And maybe that's a criticism for some as it could feel like slight characterization, but given where things go in the end, I think that was absolutely necessary in elevating what really goes on in the end and allowing audiences to participate with her in a real time sense. That's really about as much as I can say without getting into spoilers. I think, I think the rest of this conversation is just, it's up to interpretation. And I Mm -hmm. think you need to get into the weeds to, to kind of really dig into it. But all I can say for now is I loved it and I'll get more into why here in a minute. Sure. As for my final thoughts, I, Really like the performances. I mean, we we haven't really talked too much about Jesse Plemons, uh, aka Fat mm. Damon, but uh, I, I, <laughs> well, love, I got thoughts. <laughs> I kind of I, I, I kind of love his character in that, mm-hmm. like he represents at least to me a bit of myself. I see a bit. I see a bit of myself in like every single character. Uh, he represents like that kind of. Being unafraid to like being afraid to rock the boat, just kind of going with that mm-hmm. the character that kind of goes to the flow, and he needs someone there to kind of disturb the flow for him. Otherwise, uh, things transpire and uh, things become inevitable uh, unless he has it there. Uh, Tony Collette is uh, 
very reminiscent of my mother, so uh, I felt that performance particularly, especially around the dinner table, the tension between them, uh, and the whole family actually was just uh, screamed of home for me. So mm. on that kind of a level, I, I connected. Uh, but I kind of broke the movie down into seven different parts. There's, I, I feel like there's seven different parts to the whole movie, and I understood mm-hmm. it. I, I at least have thoughts about five of them. There's okay. there's two parts where I'm just like, uh, what, like what what is <laughs> what's going on here? What is the purpose of this? But otherwise, I enjoyed my time. Uh, I I I like this movie. I I'm not ready to say that I love it yet, but I already have watched it a second time. So uh, good. Needless to say, there's a lot here. Uh, it's probably going to take a lot of rewatches. Uh, but. Are you somebody who will rewatch this multiple times? Uh, who knows? Thank Let me you. just play the ending for you. No, no, I don't want to see how it ends. Okay, I could describe it. Um, imagine you're in a room. No, no, like... no, no, I don't want to know how it ends. I haven't seen the beginning. Uh, yeah, yet. but the ending is awesome. So if I could just Son play of a bitch, the... this is what you always do. You always spoil stuff uh, for me. No, I don't. And if I could just play the ending for you real quick, then we'll discuss that. Motherfucker, you always spoil everything before I get a chance okay, to see Okay, you sound like a crazy person right now. All right, so uh, with that, it's spoiler time. Let's talk about the the movie uh, in in a literal sense. Uh, so yeah, what JD? What did you think of what were what were, what did you think was happening? And I want to break it down to like the seven parts, uh, as I said. Uh, and of course, we can change this up into any kind of direction whatsoever. But uh, the the car ride up to me, at least uh, the way I felt about it was. There's this dissonance between them. Like, yes, they're like on similar wavelengths, but there's always going to be that slightly askewness to their relationship. Like, there's chemistry, but there's also like that kind of awkwardness that also creeps in a little bit too. That yeah, kind, it keeps them from fully connecting. Yeah. So this is really interesting, and I'm gonna be curious to hear more of what both of you have to say. But Dan, you're talking about these seven different parts. I guess where my interpretation of the film lies as it relates to that is I, I mostly see this as one part. So I I certainly want to hear you talk about those seven parts, but this, here's the reason why for me, it's mostly just one piece. Um, And, and it all ties back to the images we see of the older janitor throughout the film and Kaufman gives us clues early on as to who this really is, both mm-hmm. visually and in the dialogue. There's references to the play Oklahoma. We see the janitor eating lunch, and that's where you get the fake movie directed by Robert Zemeckis, and yep. I died when I yeah. saw that. Um, and, and, and for me, maybe you guys feel differently, but I, I think it's clear enough by the end that Jake is the janitor. Yes. And that's Mm -hmm. interesting to me because as we find out throughout the film, he's an aspiring artist. He's a painter. He's a poet. He's, he, he appreciates art and was very thoughtful about art, but heartbreakingly ends up as this janitor. And I, I do think that is symbolic of how Kaufman views himself in a way and tying that back to the title of the film. I'm thinking, of ending things in the context of the film. It's spoken to the relationship between Jake and the Buckley character, but their relationship is really just a metaphor 
for ending your own life. A notion that Kaufman makes clear, it's something he's tackled before. And in getting there, it's fascinating to see the turns he takes with these characters, both of whom see themselves as failures, who can't really engage with the world like everyone else. All they see and all they've experienced is futility. There's uh, a line, I I think we've we've referenced this earlier, but there's a line early on in the film from Buckley where she says, you know, once you get the thought in your head, you can't let it go. And I think that is something that a lot of people can relate with, but especially when it comes to this subject matter, how you let go of a thought like that, how do you reckon with it? And that leads to the ending of this film, which I find brilliant because Kaufman completely upends who we thought this film was about. It was really never about the Buckley character. Mm -hmm. It was Jake's story all along. Buckley, we mentioned earlier, does a lot of voiceover narration in this film. And not only is she an unreliable narrator, she's not even real. What we see throughout the film is a series of creations, maybe some of them from real experiences, perhaps none of them were real. Either way, it's Jake examining his life and his failures and how this girl could have changed his life if only he could have mustered the courage to talk to her, but he didn't. And now she's become an artistic projection, a a manifestation as Jake paints a picture of his loneliness and regret, which is incredibly poignant and tragic on its own terms, but even more so when you consider his aspirations and talent. As I mentioned, he wanted to be a painter. He's vibrantly astute with poetry. He's intellectually sound when it comes to film and musicals. Uh, it's, It's incredibly clear, vividly clear that he loves and appreciates art, Mm -hmm. but nothing came of it. Instead, he ends up as a janitor. That was his life. And from his perspective, that's disappointing and futile. So the last sequence at the school, I think is a haunting dreamlike sequence uh, that's symbolic of Jake's suicide. The Nobel prize being the last dagger in what could have and what could have been for Jake given his potential, which makes it all the more heartbreaking in the end uh, that, you know, his life wasn't what he thought it was going to be a pig being eaten alive, so to speak. It It is bleak and it is tragic, but I do love what Kaufman is doing inside those fundamental ideas. And, and that's why for me, I see this as one thing because all of, all of okay. the, the seven pieces that you're talking about, I think is really just a series of, creations it's it's jake projecting his loneliness and and regret and so for me it really all comes together as as one piece if that makes sense yeah uh caleb any thoughts like i feel like every artist thinks of themselves as a failure like van gogh painted the starry night in his fucking sanatorium room and he thought that it was a complete failure and everybody in the world knows that painting so I think that's just part of the creative process is like everybody hates the things that they do. Everybody uh, holds themselves up against, you know, like all the people they quote, like the great poets and everything, like everybody compares themselves to everything else. And I think that's what kills our capacity for original thought. Like everybody, everybody holds other people up as an example rather than, You know, like, instead of comparing your life to everybody's highlights reel, like, 
you're like wallowing in your behind the scenes shit while looking at everybody else's greatest hits. I don't I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense. No. No, I, I actually I, I think a lot of what you're saying is actually very apt to what I was saying about the film and even what we were talking about earlier in ter- in terms of the irony at play in that ultimately what this film is doing is something we've seen before. We've seen this lots of times because that idea of artists seeing themselves as failures is <laughs> very universal for sure. Oh and yeah. Then, so, so for me, it's, you know, and I think Kaufman is aware of that, which is why in the script, he throws in this whole idea of there's never been an original thought, including this film. Everyone's done this. There's nothing on there's in terms of what the ideas of this film, there's nothing original about it. So what he does is he, he goes about creating something visually stylistically. That's where it becomes original. That's where it becomes unique. And you throw in that Kaufman flavor and comedy and, and, and on top of what you're just talking about there. And I think that's what makes the experience for me anyway, all the, all the more exhilarating. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, uh, on to, on to what I consider part two of my, uh, seven part thesis on, on this movie. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for coming to my Ted talk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, when we get to the dinner, and this is uh, so, uh, I, I feel like this becomes this is like the repetitiveness of what a relationship can be. Like we, you, you take in particular the wallpaper. The wallpaper is just the same pattern repeated over and over and over and over and over again. It's on every wall. Every wall has its own pattern that repeats and repeats and repeats. And you know, throughout the dinner, we get different ages of jake's parents uh his dad is old his mom is old his mom is young his dad is uh young his mom is old and dying it, it's it's like as if life blends together uh due to its repetitiveness like yes like the char- the way the characters look changes due due to age and you see that especially through buckley buckley also changes her hairstyle multiple times during during the dinner sequence but the way I felt was that it, he was just trying to show like life. Yes. Like, like there are things that there that stay the same, that are stagnant, you know, like the wallpaper uh, against the rooms, but you know, time changes people too. And at points life kind of blends together. And she even comments on that on the drive home, which we'll get to, which is my next part of my, my thesis uh, is that <laughs> she talks about how foggy she is because like, Ta- everything has just blended together. So, of course, she doesn't remember specific moments. Why would she? And, and I think what's interesting about that sequence as well is Jake's response to it all. Because he's so visibly upset the entire time. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and obviously some of that is relatable in the sense that when you bring <laughs> when you bring home a significant other to see your parents for the first time, and your parents inevitably embarrass the living hell out of you, mm-hmm. you're going to react that way. I mean, again, going back to some of the comedy of this film, it, as subtle as it is, as you know, we, we've seen this a thousand times before, but there's, there's a comment from the mother character and there's a cut to Jesse Plemons and all he does, all he can do is put his head in his face. Mm-hmm. And it's still so funny. <laughs> and, and, and just, and as that sequence goes, he just constantly gets more angry and, and upset. 
And that to me is indicative of, you know, the, of his loneliness and regret, especially given at least how I see the film as it being a projection of what if, because they talk about the bar, right? How they met and how that story constantly evolves and changes juxtaposing what you're talking about in terms of the, the, the mundanity and re- repetitiveness, right. that whole idea, the story of these two just constantly change. And to me, it's, it's certainly indicative of, I think Caleb said it earlier, like we don't even know her name because he don't, he never mustered the courage to talk to her. I think that story is real, but because he never talked to her, all he could do now is it's the what if game. Right. And, and, and so seeing how that evolves here is fascinating. Uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up, what the, my arguably my favorite sequence of the whole dinner scene is when they get inside um, mm-hmm. and the camera dollies over into the living room. And then all of a sudden that, that's, it, it doesn't follow them. It, it, it predicts where they're going and then it, yeah. it floats over yeah. to the record player. And it's like, do you want to listen to music? And that I think yes. that also leads to the, yes. the repetitiveness and you know how life can be predictable at times because of how repetitive you are. You know what the motions are so you can predict them going forward. The basement, like, Oh, we know what's in the basement, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's, you know, they even, they say that directly, like very literally like, Oh, I've seen a thousand horror films, you know, no one goes to the basement. You know, and then of course we get the scene in the basement later on in the film, and the way Kaufman shoots it, it is almost horror-like, right? In a sense, right, with yeah. a, a little tense, uh, tension-building score in the background yeah. too. Yeah, I thought it was cool that she started pulling the janitor's shirts out of the fucking washing machine. It was like, ah, like I figured out what yeah, this movie's no. doing. One of the and, biggest and, clues, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of life is routine, but. You know, you're more than your stupid wallpaper. That eh, debatable. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I before we move on to the next sequence though, I'm curious how you guys not just in terms of the, you know, the, you know, what it all means aspect of it, but just cinematically, visually, what did you guys think of the 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 evolving changes of you know, they're, they're an old age, they're near death. And then they're young again. And, you know, as they come in and out of the the scenes, like they're, we see like this whole spectrum of the age of the age range of those characters. Like, I'm curious what you guys thought of that. You know, like the fun house things they have at fairs and shit like that. Like you, you get into like the room that it's all the glass panels and you can't tell which way to go. And you're, you keep bumping into stuff. Like, this movie feels like that to me. Like, the whole movie just feels like you're trapped. And the whole time, she's just like, please, can we just leave? Can we just leave, please? And, like, you you just are stuck there with her. So, like, the whole movie is just, like, a feeling of claustrophobia. And you don't know where the exit is. Uh, he mentions musicals a lot. Uh, and he brings up all these music. Uh, I'm not very well versed in musicals, and then proceeds to list but, off. But here's 30, twenty that I'm 30. into. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I there 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 was that irony that I picked up on, like the very obvious irony. Like you know, it, it didn't have a break. It was you know right into it. But 
Uh, it, it, it at times feels like a stage play. Uh, oh, yeah. Just the, just the way the yeah. camera moves around and it feels like you're cha- going in different sets uh, and, and, you know, you're moving back to sets, but then like something has slightly changed. Uh, I, I found that, that kind of beautiful. I, I feel like the dinner sequence is, at least for me, the best part of the movie. It's great. I, I agree. And because I view this as some sort of manifestation, you know, you know, of Jake kind of examining his life, you know, it's, it is going to cover an expansive period of time, you know, when he's looking back at his life. And, and, and so I, I think that kind of plays into the whole stage like element of it. Um, and, and I do love that. And, he, and, and again, going back to the humor of the, of the film, it, a lot of it is just the, the, the delivery of these lines. Cause you know, that irony of Jake, like saying, I'm not well versed in musicals. And then he lists off a bunch of them like that. Mm-hmm. It's not played for laughs. It's just the way Jesse Plemons does it. Like he just, just very dryly says, Oh, I'm not well versed. And then just very matter of factly just states off like 30 of them. Right. And, and just the way it's Kaufman's timing or the comedic timing of, of Jesse Plemons like that for me is great. And of course that carries over to the dinner sequence, at least early on. It, I mean, it totally does switch gears a little bit halfway through, but um, yeah, I, I just, I love it. It is fascinating. All right. So part three of my seven part thesis on this, on this movie <laughs> is uh, the car ride to t- uh, Tulsi town. Now I, I'm fuzzy on what I really think this, this scene is, is all about. I don't know if it's any of the repetitiveness, but it really, it felt like to me is like, this is where they step up. They're mindlessly quoting, you know, philosophy, opinion, critique. This is where it really ups itself and really like how there's just no original thought whatsoever. Like even Buckley looks like she's, it seems like she's doing a film critic impression. She's channeling Pauline Kale a hundred percent. So like for me, it's very much there. You know, we said in the beginning and we kind of referenced it a bit, but there is just no original thought in, in the world. Like, you, you know, even if you think you have something original, you go and I've done this multiple times. Oh, I have an original idea and I go on the Internet and 400 other people at least have come up with this idea. <laughs> you know, it's that yeah. that's at least my read on that sequence. I'm not sure what the actual read is, but like that that's one of the ones that I had the like one of the ones that like I understood ish but still had a challenging time figuring out what it meant to me. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about that sequence, I mean, the, the conversation on a woman under the influence stands out to me the most in in the sense that for one, I've heard podcasts have that exact same conversation. Like the, the discourse there in the car, I've, I've heard that on other shows. Mm -hmm. So it is, Again, tying back to the whole idea of nothing is original. I just, I laugh so hard at that because I've certainly heard that before. But I also think there's credence to that conversation because that can be a polarizing film. And because I also see this, well, and obviously a lot of this in the end is from Jake's perspective. It's also somewhat tender or poignant to me as well because it's a film that Jake inevitably likes or appreciates, admires, and he gives reasons for it only for this figment of his imagination to completely undermine him. Mm-hmm. And thinking about that, I don't know. I, in, in some ways I kind of had that 
that same thing with me with this film in the sense that you talk yourself into liking certain aspects and then there's a whole nother part of your brain that counters that and you start thinking about the criticisms well there's this thing and then there's that thing i i in fact that was i very much had that maybe less so with this film but christopher nolan's tenant sure. seeing that film i was so polarized that i was having that conversation with myself in in my own car i guess so so i do think it's you know it's it's as broad and in terms of personal communication and discourse as well as it is internal um, and I don't know, there's something about that, especially in hindsight of where things go in the end that I just, it, I just find it a bit emotional, I guess. I think that people overvalue originality and uniqueness. I think just be yourself. Like everybody's an amalgamation of things. Just like find a combination of pre-existing ideas that works for you and stick to it, I guess. I don't know. There's no such thing as like authenticity derived from like being novel you know what i mean sure and that plays off of jd's interpretation is this is you know the jesse Plem, the the jack character this is really his movie and that he's thinking this and he he's having this in this conversation with himself that oh well this is something something somebody's already said you know uh, and he's thinking well maybe this idea isn't worth sharing and, and you see how timid he is how meek he is and in terms of hearing mm-hmm. this kind of criticism it's kind of like well i liked it well it's like yeah it, you like it and you can sort of explain it but you know you have somebody who can come along say it better and therefore you think your opinion isn't worth sharing i don't know like we find out that he was too timid to talk to the girl that he thought was interesting or whatever but like mm-hmm. whenever they go to the fucking ice cream store like he makes her order for him like he's yeah. he has to use the imaginary woman that he created in his mind to talk to the other pretty girls so yeah. like he's never he can't do it himself he's never moved past that yeah and maybe that's a big element to the art as well i mean cuz we we do I mean, in the conversation, we come to understand how, you know, intellectually sound he is, you know, when it comes to film or, or poetry, we, and we actually do visually see some of the paintings that he's created. So it's very clear that the guy's talented, but he can't overcome this, you know, this timidness that he feels internally. It's like, he's afraid to embrace life and like, he's afraid of what would happen if he tried. And I think we've all been there in some kind of, in some cases, like we, uh, I know I have, especially uh, there, there've been times where I'm like, well, uh, I, I'm too afraid to ask out this woman. So who who knows what will ever happen? And you know, it, it, it you have to come back and rebuild yourself. Uh, or if you don't, you know, you're, you're doomed to your loneliness. Like, like he seemingly is. All right. Uh, that brings us to part four, Tulsi town. Uh, I have no <laughs> idea what the fuck was happening at Tulsi town and what it means. <laughs> Maybe there isn't anything thematic about it. Maybe it's just meant to be a funny sequence. I think that it's kind of just a rumination on his, like I was saying, like failure to fully embrace life, like his inability to act when he's provided an opportunity. Yeah, because like you're saying, the the two girls are, it comes across as, you know, kind of picking on him. But for all we know, that's just his own projection of them. Yeah. 
It, it's his memory. Yeah. So like he's thinking they're picking on him, but in reality they're actually you know like interested in him. They want to see. They want to hear from him. They want to talk to him, and he's too afraid to. Whether it's due to embarrassment, timidness, uh, a f- fear of failure, any of those factors. So. Uh, maybe you're right. Maybe maybe this is like a, a yeah. microcosm of his, of his feelings in terms yeah. of trying to express himself. Yeah, and then yeah. he makes his I mean, thought woman get the ice cream from the girl who's not classically attractive. And he and he and on the back of that, when they get in the car, and she's like, "Didn't you notice the girl with the rash on her arm?" And he's he's like, "No. Why would I notice her?" Exactly. Yeah. And and that's interesting as well, because part of the reason he wouldn't have noticed is that he had his back turned the whole time. It, he couldn't even face them. Like he had to, he couldn't even, he couldn't even look at them. Like mm-hmm. he was so timid that he just, he literally had to turn his back. To to quote the first issue of uh, Todd McFarlane's Kiss Psycho Circus comics, because uh, this is the obscure thing that I'm going to quote in this episode. Uh, Faint heart never won fair maiden, which I think is maybe originally Shakespearean. I don't know. Makes sense. A, a clown says it to a kid in a comic book about kiss. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that brings me to part five, which is the the car ride to the high school, which is all about at least me second guessing you know on the surface they look calm and ready i had to just say that just <laughs> to drop bombs fact- but she keeps on spaghetti no but uh they they talk about how like they barely eat any of their their burrs like, and you know when you don't eat anything you're like well you shouldn't have gotten that and so they got on this high this this road to the high school and it's like wow this is really small and it's like trying to convince yourself that this isn't the way to go like you're always second guessing yourself as to these decisions real real quick aside if if you haven't actually watched the film a burr is the movie stand in for a dq blizzard uh because in the book that this is based on they go to dairy queen and get blizzards but in this they go to tulsi town and get burrs yeah of course you can't pay for the uh the naming rights oh no very low budget movie (laughs) yeah but uh, that's at least my my read on it is like this this part of the journey is all about the second guessing of you know all of your decisions you know the and Tulsi Town is just like the beginning of that you and you hear all, th- all throughout Jesse Buckley saying well we shouldn't be doing this because of this or this or this or this or this and I think it's fascinating the culmination of that because obviously we're gonna and the last segment of this is the school itself. And as Buckley goes to walk into the school, she looks down at this, you know, this this garbage can, and it's completely full of those cups of ice cream. So it, which is suggestive that he, you know, he goes to Tulsi Town all the time to buy these ice creams for whatever reason. Can't manages to never eat them; just throws them away. Well, they're gigantic. You know? like that's like a, well, that's like a fucking big gulp of ice cream. It is. It is. <laughs> but, I mean, symbolically, I, I I do think it's you know suggestive that you know of that timidness that we're talking about. He just can't ever overcome himself. You know, and, and you know what that means for him. But I, I just found that interesting. The other thing is, is they they bring up the quote, uh, "God only gives us as much as we can bear," which, like, uh, I think the ice cream is also like significant of that. It signifies that too. Is like he think like 
it gives you so much, but he he can't take as much. He can only he can only do a little before he's like, no, I can't I can't do this anymore. And that's more of like a reflect, like you said with his timidness. That's a reflection of his personality, his timidness that he he can only deal with a little bit before he has to like shirk away and shrink away and uh, it like completely remove himself from the situation. Yes. So <laughs> thank, thank you. I, I just needed a little validation. <laughs> yeah. You know, yes. it, it, I, I will admit I that's a line of dialogue that I find fascinating and one that I would have to probably sit on to to think you know, to really think about how that relates more to to Jake. Um ju- just because of how hefty of an idea that that is. I mean, because I, I don't I don't think this film really ties religion into it no. in a in a significant way so maybe that's just one of those ironies that Kaufman is is kind of throwing there in there as you know as as a laughable notion you know because you know his life at least as projected through all of his films is seemingly you know overwhelming you know he does see himself as a failure he's noted that not just in his films but in interviews um, so the idea that God will only give you as much as you can bear is probably something he scoffs at. And that's, you know, probably a big reason he threw it in there. But, you know, what that means to Jake, I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that more. But it is an interesting line, though. Uh, it goes along the lines of the platitudes they were talking about. Like, they're quoting platitudes, but that's the one that, you know, Buckley doesn't raspberry to. It, you know, she yeah, she, she sure. says it and then nothing happens. It's just like, oh, this is just what we accept. All right, brings us to uh, part six, the school interior. Uh, I have literally Night. no idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I hate to sound like a broken record. I, I really think a lot of what happens in the school and and then, of course, the, the, the tag scene that we get at the end. I mean, that, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's a lot of it is symbolic of his suicide and and it's all done through you know it's done through musicals it's done through dance it's done through poetry and art uh which is is who he was so it's it's a projection of of his aspirations who he really was internally and and then you know you you're coupling that with it taking place at the school with the janitor what his real life actually was and that to me makes it tragic and then you throw in the whole you know the, the pig animation we get at the end. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's a bit on the nose. Certainly Kaufman could have handled that with more subtlety, but maybe he didn't care about subtlety. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe he was just, he was really going for something, um, you know, poignant and something deeply moving, you know, but you know, it, it works for me you know, either way, even if it is a bit on the nose, I, I quite liked it. I, I have a, a couple things. Um, so like okay. I said, like this whole movie kind of created for me this sense of like feeling trapped. The school is where he was trapped, like in, in a pretty literal way. Like oh, that yeah. was the only place that he was able to really like live and do anything and be functional at all. Cause he was so timid and couldn't really move past that. And I think that's why it takes place in a snowstorm as well. I mean, all of sure. that here is to add to that. Because that creates a sense of isolation. Like, oh, I've got change on, chains on my tires. But, like, still, you're, you're, like, 
one step away from being stranded. But uh, the other thing you said about the pigs, like whenever they first get to the farm, Jake tells this horrifying story about why they had to kill the pigs because uh, they didn't realize it. But like the pigs were lying there alive and like being eaten alive by bugs and stuff, uh, which is horrific. But that's kind of a metaphor for his life. Like he sat and did nothing and his white his life rotted away beneath him. Man, that's a, that's a good call. So uh, that's a really good call. I like that. Uh, I'm very proud that I have two very smart people on the show <laughs> to cover up my dumbness. <laughs> I understand metaphor. I'm not a very metaphorical person, but <laughs> but here's a bunch of reasons why I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and that brings us to uh, Oklahoma, part seven. Uh, obviously, it's you, you know a reflection of what he thought he could do in life. You know, he he thought he could you know actually be something if he possibly just had more courage to talk to this. Like, and and I think this is like a La La Land uh, epilogue kind of thing, where it's like this dreamscape of like this is all I could have been with this relationship. It's tragic in in a sense because he feels like this relationship would have changed his life, but if he just looked inside and realized what he needed to work on himself and didn't look outwards to somebody else, uh, in in order to help fill that gap, maybe he would be at this place. And you know, maybe it wouldn't be with Jesse Buckley. Maybe it'd be with somebody else. Maybe you know, one of the girls at um Tulsi Town would be would be there with him. Or or maybe he didn't need anybody. Yeah. Like I that's that is the irony of the Buckley character or any relationship that he could have had. Like none of that necessarily would have fostered success for him artistically. If he just could have overcame that timidness, he you know, given his talents and what we saw from him throughout the film, he could have he could have been up on stages giving speeches as he does at the end anyway, you know, without anyone necessarily you know, provoking them there. But right. for, for Jake, it's arguably he saw the two as very connected. So uh, that, that's my uh, seven-part thesis on this movie. Uh, <laughs> it, any, any final things you guys want to talk about with spoilers? Uh, we're running very long. This is arguably the longest review we've ever had outside of Stranger Things Season 3. Man, I don't, I, I don't, I, I feel like we, we've covered a lot of it. I mean, it, it cannot be emphasized enough how weird this film can get in yes. places. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, this is a masterclass in tonal filmmaking as far as I'm concerned, as much as I laughed. And I, I, I will still stick to what I said earlier that I, I do think at least the first half of this film is one of Kaufman's most biting films comedically. And yet you get to the end of this one and it's arguably his most tragic. And, and I love that duality. And, you know, you couple that with what you were saying earlier in terms of this embracing the idea that nothing is original, yet he, speaking of Kaufman, makes this very unique and original just in terms of his approach to the material. And again, offering up another duality, um, it's it, it, it's it's going to be one you have to sit down and think about. Perhaps you'll walk away with different interpretations than than what we've laid out here. But you know, I see that as a positive to the film. I love all of the intricacies of it, the, the nuances. I am dying to see this film again, and, and cannot wait to see it another two, three, four times and continue to pick up 
new things. And, and I guess the last thing for me, I haven't really emphasized it enough, I don't think, but the performances here, are, I think, are really great. Um, I'm already a Jesse Buckley stand to begin with, and this doesn't do anything to deter me from that. She is phenomenal in this film, I think. And, and Jesse Plumins is low-key, arguably even better, in the sense that he has to make you think that this is Buckley's film. Mm-hmm. So he very purposefully kind of removes himself and he has to, cause the character is very timid anyway, but I think he does a great job of playing into that timidness um, while letting Buckley kind of, you know, take the reins before he kind of out of nowhere takes control of the movie in the last 20, 25 minutes. And there, there's something about how he approaches that, that I, I absolutely love. So I can't say enough good things about it. I highly recommend it, at least for those that like these kind of films that love Kaufman. I could see this, you know, for a lot of people labeling this as, you know, lower tier Kaufman, but I, it's, it's maybe one of my favorites of his. It's at the very least, one of my favorite films of 2020. I I adore the film. Not, let's be clear, JD, not exactly a high bar at this point. No, that that is very true. We haven't seen a ton of 2020 films, and I'm actually behind on my homework for 2020. So who oh, yeah. knows if that'll stay up there? But I don't <laughs> I don't know if I see that going away. I mean, I I told you offline, Dan, that I was I was maybe more excited for this conversation than any review I've done so far this year, and I'm having this not even on my show. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm just I'm just so excited to talk about this film and. Uh, and, and really get into you know what what everyone thinks of it and um, yeah I, I just I love it absolutely love it so I I don't I don't necessarily see that fizzling out for me sure Caleb final thoughts I mean we've talked about this for an entire hour one of the only hours that I have on this planet in this human body so I uh, will just say it's a good movie uh, I recommend it uh, good job. all right um oh early in the review like i i said like i feel like this movie is trying to get me to realize something but i i don't know what that is i think through actually hashing that out over an hour of discussing it uh i feel like i got there so thanks hooray good Good. Yeah. That's that was my kind of approach. Like when I when I said like there there are two parts that I didn't understand. You guys helped me understand that. So I think that's like or at least like an interpretation of that. And maybe I can go into my my next viewing of this with that kind of interpretation. Or, you know, I can use that interpretation as like a leapfrog into something else. And that goes back to this movie's idea that there is no original thought. And, you know, thought carries off of itself in, into a different kind of form. Um as for me, my final thoughts on this are this. Uh, if you've listened to this and you disagree with us, that's fine. Uh, this is, like I said at the very beginning, this is very interpretational. You're allowed to think whatever you want about this movie, and you're probably right, in least, at least in your own terms. I have no issue with that. Uh, if for some reason you've, watched, you've listened to this review and haven't watched the movie, what's wrong with you? Why have you done that? Why have you gotten to this part? <laughs> but regardless, uh, yeah. go watch this. At the very least, you will get something out of it. What that will be, totally up to you. So, that is it. JD, 
thank you for coming on. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and In Session Film? Yeah, so the easiest way to find us and everything we have is on our website at incessionfilm.com. So there we got links to the podcast, uh, which is on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts. We have um, two shows that we do. We have uh, a main show that comes out every Monday. We have um, what we call extra film that comes out on Fridays, and that is the coded that is dedicated, excuse me, to films such as this, uh, the indies, the art house films, you know, or, or classics that we don't have time for on our main show. Um, so we have those two. We also have written reviews and and a, a bunch of new written content that is actually coming to the site soon nice. that you can check out. So yeah, all of that you can find in sessionfilm.com. And thanks for having me. I this was a lot of fun. Yeah. I've been looking forward to having you back uh, since the last time we spoke was uh, mm-hmm. Spider-Man Far From Home. Uh, yeah. And the last time you were on this show was actually our Six Balloons review. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember that now. I'm very, very glad that you were back on the show. Yeah. Uh, so with that, everybody, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back from that, we're going to talk about a patron requested review for Frost to Nixon. On Halloween six years ago... Two men in Austin, Texas created a podcast that vowed to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. On Halloween, 42 years ago, he came home and unleashed hell on Jamie Lee Curtis for reasons that have repeatedly changed. To celebrate the scariest time of the scariest year, the Contrarians visit Haddonfield, Illinois' most infamous tale for a six-part series. Witness the terrifying highs, the dizzying lows, and the creamy middles as Julio and Alex follow the canonical chronology of Michael Myers. Beginning in September, the Contrarians will stalk their way through the 1978 original, the Rob Zombie remake, the season of The Witch, the curse of Michael Myers, 20 years later, and the 2018 sequel. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact... Welcome back, Dan. It's time to get into our... Uh, patron review for the week, uh, which is Frost Nixon, requested by Julio. Well, fine, if you don't want my money. You mean, if we watch terrible movies, you'd give us money? Well, sure. Mr. Caleb, welcome to the patron review segment. Uh, So this is a dramatic retelling of the post-Watergate television interviews between British talk, talk show host David Frost and former President Richard Nixon. Uh, so give me a hot take. What did you think of Frost-Nixon? Uh, my hot take is that Michael Sheen looks a lot like Jack Nicholson with that hair. It's true. Uh, as for the actual quality of the movie, it's good. Uh, a lot of it can be played today. Uh, if you just sat a, an orange Cheeto a, across from David Frost, it would uh, <laughs> sound very much the same. Uh, so there's there's that. Uh, it's it's poignant, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, because uh, now we have uh, worse Nixon who gets away with it because no one cares. Right. Politics have become a cult of personality as opposed to you know, actually holding people accountable. I don't know. Uh, Frank Langella doesn't really look a whole lot like Nixon, but he, he kind of nails the voice. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I like this movie. 
I yeah. don't really know what to say about it because it's just a, a historical account and uh you should watch it but like it's uh it's an acting powerhouse movie incidentally this was adapted from a stage play and i think sometimes when you have stage plays uh they they do tend to feel like stage plays like uh, the best one i can come up with is fences fences is a stage play by august wilson and there are certain sequences in the movie where it's like this is definitely adapted from a play and they didn't know how to adapt it from a play into a movie this never feels like that. It always feels like, you know, somebody came up with a script for a movie and then the idea got made. Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know how much I want to get into the plot of this, but uh, I liked it. People should watch it. And uh, I, this is an effective movie. I learned about a historical event. Yeah, me too. Uh, and and kind of how news changed uh, for possibly the worst. Or for the worse, because uh, this became part of like the news for ratings kind of craze. Like this kind of started it, where you know, yeah. Now, now we'll pay for it. Now journalists will pay for interviews. Now they're they're searching for the big gets so they can get the most ratings. Uh, I think this this probably helped kick that off. And that's not this movie's intention is to start that discussion or even say that in the first place, but. I feel like it was an unintended consequence of this event. Yeah, I can get down with that. Kevin Bacon's in here. Uh, he was pretty good. As as uh, Nixon's fucking shithead right-hand dude. Right. <laughs> who fucking barges in and is like, fucking stop the cameras. Stop the cameras, he's gonna admit to something. Yeah. Uh, I love that he was basically con- conservative brainwashed, man. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about this movie is that it's kind of shot like a documentary. Like, uh, 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 the narrative parts all kind of flow, but then, like, to fill in the gaps, they're like, uh, the, it's like they're interviewing the people who were who were there in order to, uh, yeah, to, to, to fill them in. I thought that was interesting. They have like little asides with, um, the actors as the characters. Yeah, uh, Nixon was a shithead. Yeah. Uh we've we've had a history of really bad presidents, so I mean, he's definitely on that list of truly bad presidents. Although he he brings it up himself and sometimes the movie does make him sympathetic-ish, but you you also remember that what he was and they kind of use his quote-unquote triumphs to turn around on him. Uh but uh, he he does say that like sometimes you're defined by your biggest moment, whether that's good or bad, and for him it was bad. So, uh, what would you give Frost Nixon? Uh, I would give it a four. I thought this was pretty good. I recommend it. Yeah, I also recommend it. I'm giving you a three and a half. All right. Well, uh, shorter review, but uh, hey, I think we're kind of worn out from our fucking hour long review of. Yeah. So uh, you get an extra special long review of uh, a Netflix original property, and uh, you know, Frost, you know, I'm not gonna say Frost Nixon. There's less to talk about, that's for sure. Yeah. With that, next week on the show, you're going to be joined by Gerald of Two Piece on a podcast to talk about the Babysitter Killer Queen, uh, because uh, he is quote a horror guy unquote. And in the back half of the episode, we're going to do a dick pic. So, Caleb, 
believe it's your turn. So my word was rush, and that brought me Rush, Beyond the Lighted Stage. This is a documentary about the band Rush. Oh, okay. So we get to see some Getty Lee. Yeah. Neil Pert stands alone. Other quotes from cartoons about Rush. Okay. So yeah, I like Rush. Yeah, Rush is fine. Yeah, what do you want from me? I didn't listen yeah. to too much Rush. My dad sort of sort of listens to Rush, so that's about how I know about it. About them. Dan, tell him stuff. Yeah, you can find us at netflixandswill.com. You can find our podcast, Netflix and Swill, everywhere on uh, all the social medias at Netflix and Swill, as well as uh, on your podcatcher of choice, uh, specifically Google Podcasts, uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Those are the, the big three. Uh, if you visit our website, you can find links to all of those, uh, and as well as uh, links to Rabbit Ears and Netflix and Swill Classic. That's right, Netflix and Swill Classic is up. There's five episodes. Bear with me. Uh, I'm still working through getting up all of the stuff on the Netflix and Swill main feed first, and then I will move on to Netflix and Swill Classic, unless you come to me with a specific request for a specific episode, in which case I'll probably just put it up then. But, uh, yeah. Netflixandswill.com. Uh, if you like us, check out our Patreon page, review us on Apple Podcasts, or buy some merch and show us that you love us by wearing our stuffs. Yeah. Uh, thank you to Space Weather for the use of our theme song, uh, Untitled Daleb and Can Project. It's actually called Bitter, but. <laughs> well, that also fits us. Yes. So. Yes, it does. Until next week, this is Caleb saying we'll see you next Tuesday. Netflix and Swill is an independent podcast. As such, we believe in the scrappy underdogs of the podcast world. If you're an indie podcast and would like us to run your promo on our show, please contact us. The little guys need to stick together. If you enjoy what we're doing, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and telling a friend. The more we grow, the better the show will be. Thank you for being part of the Netflix and Swill family.